Good morning, church. Good morning. My mind is not really here. I'm thinking kickoff, 12 o'clock. I'm, I'm thinking about the game. If you don't mind, I'm pulling my phone out, and I'm going to put the game up here on the... T- no, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. The Word of God is so much more important than Dallas Cowboys game. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Right? Well, good morning. We're going to continue our series today in the book of Samuel. Um, and again, we, through the book of Samuel, we're taking a look at uh, different leadership that we'll see in the book. And right now we're focusing on Samuel. Uh, and in this chapter, he's the present judge and prophet over Israel. Um, and we saw last week and a couple weeks ago how God raised him up. And, and there was a major difference between Samuel and Eli and Eli and his children. Uh, and so God raised Samuel up to be his voice, to be his prophet to the people, and to be a judge over the people and leader over the people. Uh, and last week what we saw, we saw that Samuel called the people of Israel uh, to Mizpah, and uh, he had the people repent and acknowledge God. And when they did that, um, God came in and he delivered the Israelites from the Philistine army. And, uh, and so where we're picking up today is a few years later. Uh, Samuel's not that, not that young anymore. He's a little up in age. But they've lived in that peace of the, of the lack of oppression from the Philistine army uh, since Samuel led them to repent and humble themselves before God at Mizpah. And so today we're going to pick it up in chapter 8. And we're just going to continue to look at his leadership and uh, how Samuel handled or handles a certain uh, situation and circumstance that will arise through this passage. If this is your first time here with us, uh, first off, I want to welcome you and thank you for making grace a part of your Sunday morning. Uh, Also, I want to say that underneath the chairs in front of you, there are Bibles, and in the worship guide that was handed uh, to you as you were walking in, on the back page, there are notes, and there's a page number. That page number correlates with that Bible underneath those chairs. So please grab one, turn to that page, and you'll be able to read along with us. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible and there aren't Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, you can follow along on the projector uh, behind me. And uh, as we read through 1 Samuel chapter 8. So we'll read through it right now, but let me ask you a question. If, If you just went home today and you went through a personal photo album, uh, from way back when to now, um, what would you see? What would you see? Think about that for a minute. I can answer it for myself, right? See, what happens is we are, we're, we're prone to want to conform to our culture, right? And one of the ways that we do that is through our clothing, through our hairstyles, uh, through uh, the amount of makeup women wear or the amount of jewelry they wear or men's, you know, tattoos or, or whatever, earrings, whatever it may be. But we're, we're, we're prone to want to conform to the world. And so if, if I go back to pictures of myself when I was younger and I go through the decades, uh, in the early 80s, obviously, I was a little kid, so I didn't care too much about fashion. I would throw on any shirt, any short, any pair of pants. I didn't care. It didn't matter. The only thing I was a little conscious about was, was a Snickers. I wanted to have some good sneakers, you know, and, 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 or tennis shoes. Can I say, y'all around here, tennis shoes? Um, you know, and, and, and I already knew the different athletes who had tennis shoes out, so I wanted those tennis shoes. You know, I wanted to run like Bo Jackson or like Deion Sanders or uh, Ken Griffey's to, so I can hit the baseball right, you know. And, uh, and so if, if I look at those, like in the, in the 90s, when I'm in middle school and high school, right, 
If I look at it, I'm wearing, my, my clothes is a little baggier, larger shirts, larger pants. Uh, my eighth grade year was interesting. I only had one pair of jeans. I'd go home. I'd wash them every day. I'd take them out. I'd starch them and iron them myself, get them ready for the next day. That was like my daily routine because I had one pair of jeans. I don't know why I never said, Mom, Dad, can you go get me some more jeans? I had one pair of jeans. And so they, you know, that's what I would do. And, um, but when I got to high school, there was a certain type of clothes I wanted to wear. Um, you know, in my area growing up, there was two clothing lines that you would wear, okay? You'd either wear Tommy Hilfiger or Ralph Lauren Polo, right? So I made the decision that I wasn't going to be like everyone else, and I was going to go with Ralph Lauren Polo because everyone wanted to do Tommy Hilfiger. I was like, I don't want to walk around with a little flag. I'd rather have a little guy on a horse playing polo, right? I want to look a little more sophisticated, you know what I mean? So I, I went with Ralph Lauren Polo. And, um, and so I thought, you know, I thought I was cool. That's what you wore then. And then I got to Bible school and quickly realized that uh, there was another clothing store named Express that I had never heard of. Had never heard of Express. Had never heard or seen the style that Express gives people, right? I, I think if I would have worn Express back in my high school and middle school and in my neighborhood, I probably would have gotten slapped a couple of times for dressing like that. And so... I didn't, I had no idea. All I knew is that at Bible school, most of the guys, most of the people were from larger cities, so they dressed a certain way, and I was like, man, I look weird. I look weird. I got my khaki starched. I got my polo boots on, my large shirts. I looked weird, right? And so I uh, quickly found out that Express has an annual sale, clearance sale. Back then they did. $10 for jeans and pants, $5 for shirts. I would go and I would attack that sale every year, and, uh, and, and I changed. I changed the way I, I dressed and looked. Why? Because I was allowing culture to dictate how uh, I would dress and look. And some of you are laughing. Some of you are thinking, oh, Adrian, come on. That's so childish. Well, go back and look at, at your pictures. I dare you. Some of you even had hair back then. <laughs> I dare you. Some of you had Afro blowout kits. Some of you wore platforms. Some of you can go all the way back to the 60s. You have pictures from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, 2000s, now 2010. And you've seen how it changes. And it changes from decade to decade. You know, some of you men were, were popping the butterfly collars like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. You thought you were the cool dude in the club. And then you walked in and everyone was wearing it. Like, Man, dang it. I'm just like everyone else. But we allow culture to dictate who we are. Right? And, and all joking aside, you know, dressing a certain way is one thing. But what about... What about when we start allowing our culture to infiltrate our beliefs and our faith? What about when our culture begins to undermine my trust in God and my trust in God's word? What about when that happens in your life? And so many times, because culture change is so prevalent, by the time we open our eyes and realize, oh my goodness, I've conformed in this area. It's already like too late. We've already, we're already so far down the line and we've already committed the act. We've already done these things. And so one of the things or the thing that we're going to see in this passage, in this chapter, is we're going to see a people who have time and time again been delivered by God. And God has responded every single time, just as he said he would but a people who still had a lack of trust and faith in their God and trusted their culture around them more than him. So let's go ahead and jump into that passage. Let's go to 
Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. We'll go ahead and read through the entire passage, and then we'll start fleshing it out and giving you the points. So let's, let's jump in here. Verse 1 says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his way, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel. Then they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice only. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Verse 10. So Samuel took all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the rest of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because you are king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there, will, there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all of the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So my first point of the day is this. When my right to act is coupled with the lack of trust in the Lord, my action becomes sinful. When my right to act is coupled with the lack of trust in the Lord, my action becomes sinful. The people demanded a king. And let's take a look at verses 4 through 7 again. And, and, and let's see what's going on there. So the elders, it says here that the elders... All, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. So the first thing they do here is they give, they give Samuel two reasons. Two reasons why they felt they needed someone else to judge them and why they needed someone else over them. But as we keep reading, something else develops and something else surfaces. And here, here's what happens. In verse 6, he says, um, or sorry, we're still in verse 5. 
the people say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Like all the nations. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, is, is this demand or is this request for a king uh, an act of sin? Did the people do wrong by asking for a king? And for that, we have to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 15, if you, it says this. It says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. Sound familiar? Sounds exactly like what's happening here, right? You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from you, uh, sorry, it says, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So the first thing we say, okay, is the request wrong? Is the request sinful? And by what we're seeing in Deuteronomy, no, the request is not sinful. God makes a provision for the request in his law. He makes a provision here in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So then we ask ourselves, then what is the big issue? What's the real deal? Well, remember I told you they first give them two reasons. You're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now put a king over us. And what do they say after that? Like all of the other nations, like all of the nations. You see, the Israelites had a propensity to conform to the cultures where they were at. Ever since they were, uh, they were freed from Egypt and they saw the ten plagues, they saw the way God handled Pharaoh, they saw the mighty works of God, they saw how God brought them out. And on their way out of Egypt, they're singing a song of praise because, wow, we left Egypt. Not only are we leaving Egypt, not only did, did Pharaoh allow us to leave Egypt because of what God did, without even asking, they gave us gold and silver and we plundered Egypt. God plundered Egypt for us. So we're, they're letting us go from being their slaves. But not only that, they're giving us tons of things. And so they're walking and they're celebrating. And what happens when they first get to the Red Sea? They had just seen all of the miracles. They had just seen all of the wonders. They get to the Red Sea, they throw their hands up in the air, I guess. And, My God, you brought us out here to be slaughtered by the Egyptian army next to the, here at the sea. They had already forgotten what God had done for them, right? So then what happens? God parts the Red Sea, they walk through it, the ground is dry. Can you imagine that? I can't. The, the, I mean, there's walls of water, the ground is dry, and they're going through the Red Sea and they're singing another song of praise. Wow, this is awesome. They get to the other side, the waters close in on Pharaoh's army, and they see that. They turn around and they, <laughs> well, that Pharaoh ain't so big after all, right? And it closes, boom, and they're, they <laughs> thought so. They turn back around and they, oh no. My God, you brought us into the wilderness to die of, of, of starvation and, and a lack of water. Seeing a trend? And time after time after that, these people, instead of trusting and putting their faith in the God who had brought them out of Egypt, would rather conform to the world and to the gods. That's what, that's what God said. He said, and they turned to other gods. As we learned a couple weeks ago, they turned to, to, to the gods of Canaan. Wherever they were, they were always conforming and forgetting the God that had gotten them out of the Exodus. And I know that that's really hard for us to understand because we don't live in those times. Um, 
You know, we don't know what it's like to be, well, we kind of do, it's just in a different way. But we don't know what it's like to be in a nation like Egypt who had multiple gods. We don't know what it's like to travel from place to place and be the only nation of that time who believed in one god and everyone else believed in multiple gods. They had a god of, of, of the beetles, a god of, of, of the, the, the fertility of the ground, they had a god of the sun, god of everything, everything they had a god for, right? Uh, and so the Israelites were the only ones, and that's one of the ways they were separate. Uh, they were separated, set aside for God because they had one God, right? And every other nation was, was, had just multiple gods. And so there, we don't know what it's like to see that. But here, here let, me, let, me, let, me, let me put into terms that, that we might understand. What about in our culture? What are some of the gods or kings that we might submit ourselves to? Is it to the... To, to, the popular, the, the, the popular thought or message of culture in our times? You know, one of the great issues right now I believe the church is facing is, is whether or not to observe homosexual marriages as something that God would permit. And, and we're being pressured and pressured by our culture to, to change, and the Word of God is no longer relevant. The Word of God was written thousands of years ago. There's no way that this can tell us exactly how we need to live today. And because of that pressure, there's been so many believers, churches, and different denominations who are starting to cave. They've caved, and they said, yes, you know what? We understand what you're saying. The word of God is no longer relevant in our lives today. Therefore, we're going to be okay with that. We're going to marry people in, within those circumstances. And we observe it. Or what about when you say to yourself, well, I have the right to provide for my family. And you do. We all do. But what about when that right to provide for our family drives us to think we've got to give our kids something we never had. We've got to give them more. Uh, we've got to have a bigger house. And, and now we're driven by our career. We're driven by how much we make. We're driven by greed and, and the Lord of this world. And the very things that we want to do for our kids, we don't do. Your kids aren't going to remember that you bought them a PlayStation 4. They're going to remember that you were never around. They're not going to remember that you gave them every car that, you, that they wanted. They're going to remember that any time they were trying to look for daddy, he was always at the office. He never had time for them. Because the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of having more and the pursuit of giving them what they never had was more important than spending quality time with your kids, with our kids. See, we might not understand what it's like to live in those days. We think it's foolish. How could, they have a, 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 how could the Egyptians have a, a god of the beetles or a god of the locusts? And how, how could they have all of that? That's ridiculous. But church, we're not too far off because we make our own gods and kings that we allow to lord us. And one of those lords and one of those kings is culture. We allow culture to dictate what we say, what we do, and how we live. Instead of allowing and trusting the word of God to do that for us. We say that we have faith in God. We say that we trust in God. Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 tells me that the word of God was inspired by God. The Greek word there means, it, it essentially means it was breathed by God. And it's profitable for training, for correction, for reproof. It's profitable for these things even now. 
I have faith and trust in the word of God that it was true yesterday, it is today, and it will be tomorrow and forever. And so when we're conflicted, when we are wrestling with issues that we see the world wrestling with, what we have to do is at some point just come to God and submit to his word and say, God, I don't necessarily understand it completely right now. I don't. But I do know that your word says that it's better to live life this way, and culture is saying we should live this way. But I'm going to trust that what you have to say is better than what culture has to say. You know, the root of sin is a lack of faith in God. You know why we choose to do things that the Word of God says we're not supposed to do? Have you ever asked yourself that question? It's because we think that we know better than Him, and we think that this culture knows better than Him, and therefore our faith is not in Him. Our faith is in culture and in ourselves. And we must do the opposite. These people were more consumed with being uh, conformed to their culture than serving the God who time and time again had delivered them from their oppressors. And each time they called, he responded in the perfect way, just as he said he would in his word. They called, they repented, they humbled, God delivered. They called, they repented, they humbled, God delivered. You know, in baseball, a, a batting average is, is 200, 300, 400. And um, the Mendoza line is 200. If you're batting 200, you're still in the minor leagues. You're probably not going to play much in the majors. One of the lines where you say, wow, that's a good hitter is at the 300 line. 300 line means 30%. That's what that means. They just add an extra zero. I don't know why they do that. I guess it sounds better than, than 30%. He's batting 30. No, he's batting 300. 300 sounds better. One of the other lines is the 400. If you can bat 400 in, in, in an entire season, that's Hall of Fame worthy. That's amazing. There hasn't been too many people who have done that. 40%. We think 40% is good. Church, God is batting 1,000% here. <laughs> He's never missed, and he never will. If you like football, he's 100% completion percentage, and every completion is a touchdown. He doesn't miss. He hadn't missed for them. But they were too caught up with conforming to their culture and conforming to the world around them and had more trust in that than in the God who had saved them. So we've got to be careful. When we lose faith in the word of God, we begin to sin and our actions become sinful. Let's keep reading. Let's go to verse 10. Here comes the warning. Isn't God merciful? God is awesome, right? These people go, we need a king. Give us a king now. We demand one. So I titled it a faithless demand. It was without faith. And God says, okay, Samuel, you're going to do that. But before you do that, I need you to warn them. I need you to warn them. And here goes the warning, verse 10 and on. So Samuel told the word of, of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. 
He will take your daughters to be, the perfu- per- to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there will be a king over us that we may also be like all of the nations. And that was their heart. They didn't repeat the age issue. They didn't repeat the issue with the sons. What did they repeat? That we would be like all of the nations. Again, conforming was more important to them, and they trusted in that more than the God that had delivered them from Egypt. Here's my second point. Conforming to this world's pattern will enslave me to the repercussions of those patterns. Conforming to this world's pattern will enslave me to the repercussions of those patterns. So we read through verses 9 through 18, we see the warning. Church, I have to stop. Because if I asked you, would you like to live in a nation where your family is completely autonomous? You paid no taxes. You weren't responsible to submit to a president or a government that you thought was too small, too medium, too big, whatever it may be that your argument is with the government. There is none. There's no government. Your children don't have to work for them. They don't have to be, we don't have to be enslaved to them. Again, I have to repeat, no taxes. What would you say? Show me that country. I'd love to live there. This is who Israel was. Every clan and every family was completely autonomous. Every village had an elder. And there was a judge that would lead them and be that intermediary person between them and God, like Samuel was. But there was no king. There was no president. There was no governor. There was no secretary of state. There was no... 15 million golfers at the Capitol that we have to pay salaries for. (laughs) There was none of that. They were completely autonomous. And the warning was, you're going to be enslaved to him. Because at the moment you install a king, you have to pay their salaries. You have to take care of them. You're going to be their servants. You're going to have to be enlisted into their military. You're going to have to do this. You're going to have to do that. And what what was the Israelites' response to that? We don't care. We just want to be like every, everyone else. You know, one of the things that we do with our kids is we allow them to save money in piggy banks. We allow them to save money in piggy banks. And throughout the year, we're putting in 50 cents, a quarter, a dollar, whatever change we get. Uh, the grandparents, are, I think, are the ones that give them the bigger dollars, right? They love when grandparents hand them money because it's not going to be 50 cents or a dollar like we give them, you know, every now and then. Um, 
And so they're saving throughout the year. And one of the, the custom is, is that on their birthday, they get to open the piggy bank. And the very first thing we do is, okay, here's a 10%. That's to God. Now, the rest of it, if you have $100, we put a 10 towards God, 90 is all yours. You do whatever you want with it. Have you ever had that experience with your kids when they have money? You take them to the store? So this past year, I took, I, it was, it just fell. We normally do this together, but this year I got to take Adrian to Toys R Us. Uh, and he had a certain amount of money. And uh, he, he really impressed me because he was going through aisle and aisle. And he'd grab a toy and, and he'd say, what do you think about this, Pops? That's what he called. What do you think about this, Pops? Or Papi, what do you think? So well, I think that's pretty cool, man, but is that what you really want? I'll save it just in case. So he puts it back. And he goes back, he goes to another. He goes, what do you think about this one, Papi? What do you think about this one? Mm, it's cool, but is that what you really want? Mm, I'll save it for later. And he goes to another one. And, what about this? Ooh, I really wanted this. I just really wanted this for like forever, right? And uh and, and he's just taking his time, and he's going back and forth, and finally found two items that he really wanted. However, it was just two items, and he was spending a lot of money on them. And so I just paused. I just pressed pause. Whoa, 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 time out, son, time out. He's like, <laughs> time out. <laughs> Slow down here. If you spend all your money now, you need to know that you won't be able to get something later on. Is this what you really, really want? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, whoa, 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 let me think about it. Mm, yeah, I, I, I'm good. I'm going to take this. I'm going to take what I want right here. All right. So we, you take him to the cashier, and, and, and he's paying, and he's giving her the money, and, and he walks out, and he feels accomplished. He purchased something, right? Well, then a couple days later, he sees his friend has something at school. Well, I want that too. So he comes back home, Papi, I really want this. I really want it. I really want it. Can you please, Papi, please, if you buy it for me, I won't ask you for anything else. <laughs> and I have to press pause and say, son, Remember at the store, I said you had a certain amount of money. And if you spend it all, you're not going to have for something else. No, no, I don't remember. <laughs> so yeah, that's because you were too excited, bud. No, no, I don't remember. So well, you did. And you said, no, I want this and that. I want it now. And I warned you. I said, no, I'm not going to buy that for you. Please, please, I said, like, no matter how much you cry and how many puppy faces you give me, it's not going to work. No. You have to live with the consequences of your decision. And in this passage, God essentially told the Israelites the exact same thing. He said, here are the consequences. Here are the repercussions. If you choose to do that, this is what you're going to have to live with. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to bail you out when you come and you call. And what did the people say? So what? We'll be like all the other nations, just like Adrian. We get what we want. Yeah. They did. Now, how many times have you gone through that in life? How many times has someone warned you and said, don't do that? Young adults, press pause on your life sometimes when you're talking to your parents. Listen to me. There's wisdom. And a lot of times you look at your parents and you think, ah, oh, you're so old-fashioned. You're not relevant today. Today's different. I'm telling you, slow down. Because your parents can't bail you out of every problem you get yourself into. And unfortunately, so many of us make those bad decisions when we're young adults. I made them. 
when I was in Dallas, didn't have a big salary. I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was able to purchase a car. My first car I ever purchased cash, $800. $800 I paid my, man, I, I, my friend had it. He's like, oh, I really don't want it. I'm like, man, I'll give you $800. No, you got to give me more. No, it's not worth it. I'll give you $800. No, $800, that's it. She said, okay, I'll give it to you for $800. I purchased it cash, church. I was, no debt for a car. Yes. But then I quickly realized everyone else around me was driving something newer, and they weren't having the mechanical problems I was having. So guess what I did? I went to the dealership. I practically towed my car there. <laughs> I did. It wouldn't turn on anymore. <laughs> Actually, I think when it got there, it just died. It was done. The guy was like, we'll give you this much for your car. You got it. It's scrap metal anyway. I don't care. And so they go through my situation. How much do you make? Uh, we're going to pull your credit score. I'm like, man, dang it. I already knew. I had, I had messed up my credit. I knew it. I, I knew I had. Thank goodness by the time that, that, that we got married, most of that had already fallen off. It means I made mistakes at a very early age. Um, but he said, well, your credit score ain't that great. You ain't got no credit, basically. So, man, I'm going to give you the deal of your life. What's that? It was 2000, 2005. It was in 2005. I said, I got, a I got a 2005 Nissan Sentra waiting for you in the lot. A Nissan? No, I don't want a Nissan Sentra. Are you kidding me? My friends are driving Volkswagens and other cool cars, and you're going to give me a Sentra? She's like, it's cool. Go look at it. So I go look at it. I said, you know what? All right, if that's what I can afford, that's what I'll take. So, I, so we sit back down. So what's it going to cost me? Man, it's only going to cost you $421 a month. What? That's like a third of my salary. Well, just think about it. Stay right there. I'll be right back. You know, they leave and they kind of leave you pondering. And then he comes back. So what? You can take it? Yes or no? Well, what's my interest rate? A cool 19%. And he leaves again. <laughs> like 19%? Are you kidding me? I'm going to pay more in, in finance charge than I am for the car by the time I'm done. He's like, but it's the deal of your life. And you know what I did? I drove off the lot with the 2005 Nissan Sentra. By the time I put insurance on it, it was like $700 a month. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> no one tells you that, Gil. Why didn't anyone warn me? Actually, he did. He came in and he warned me. He said, your payment was this and your finance rate is this. That's a warning. Listen, you go to buy a car, that's a warning. Be wise. But I wasn't wise at that moment. I wanted what everyone else had. I wanted to conform to the world. So you know what? All of the warnings, I just I tossed them to the curb. I don't care. I want what I want, and I'm going to get it. You ever been in that situation? How many of us have made countless of financial blunders just because we wanted what we wanted, and we were going to get it? How many of us, our marriages have fallen apart because we want what we want, and man, I'm going to get it. How many of us have lost our relationship with our kids? Because we want what we want, and dabgummit, we're going to get it. See, even with everything that God had told the Israelites, he said, we don't care. Our faith and trust isn't in you. It's in this world. It's in these cultures. And church, I have to bring it back to us because we're not too far off. Anytime we wrestle with, a certain, with, with something Scripture says, the very first thing we want to say is, well, I don't understand it, so I'm just going to do what I want to do. Or, ah, that's for thousands of years ago, so I'm going to do what I want to do. No. Listen, if God took the time to literally breathe 
this word for you and I to have, then it's important that we slow down in life and we let the word of God to dictate how we live, what we say and how we live or how we believe. It's not too late for any of us. In areas that you've conformed, go back to scripture. Let scripture dictate how you're gonna live. Let scripture encourage you and strengthen you to say, you know what? I'm not gonna commit adultery. Let scripture encourage you to say, I'm not gonna run the rat race of this nation. I'm not gonna try to keep up with the Joneses. I'm gonna learn to be content with what God has given me because God knows what is best for me. Not me and not my culture. If he created this world, he must be a pretty wise God. And so I'm gonna put my trust and faith in him. You know, Samuel is this prophet, judge, and leader of Israel. Samuel is rejected by the people. And Samuel's upset about that. He's genuinely upset that he was rejected by the people. That's why that's the first thing God addresses with them. They didn't reject you, they rejected me. And then God twisted it like in a really a way that God can do and it could be funny. He says, get in line, Samuel. They've been doing this to me since we left Egypt. Get in line. Ultimately, they're rejecting me and my leadership. But Samuel felt offended by it. But what do we see in Samuel? Does Samuel react out of emotion? Does he react out of anger? Does he drive down the street waving at people with the wrong finger all the time? Is he yelling at his kids when we're just frustrated with life? And we take it out on him? No, Samuel acts in a righteous manner. Samuel takes the matter to God and he prays and he does exactly what God tells him to do. I'd say Samuel is a pretty good leader. Samuel was a pretty good prophet, really good judge, but there was one even greater. There was one that several thousand years later would be rejected by his own people. It couldn't have been because of his age because he was at the tender age of 33. It couldn't have been because his sons were doing something wrong or he was doing something wrong because he had no sons and he did everything perfectly. This man lived a life that we couldn't live and paid the price that we should have paid and his name is Jesus. And even though he was rejected, he didn't get offended. He didn't allow that to, to keep him from following through with, with what was best for us and what was the will of God. No, he followed it to the point of death is what scripture tells us. I'm here to tell you today that if you've never known this Christ, there's nothing in life that you can do to be accepted by God. So stop trying. He did it for you. All you have to do is simply trust him for it. Trust in Jesus. 
believe that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah. And scripture says that you'll have eternal life. He's the greater Samuel. Samuel was a great leader, but Jesus is that much greater, church. There was nothing to implicate him, but he still went to the cross for you and for me. He wasn't conformed by this world. He was led by the will of God. Let that be your motivation and my motivation. God, lead me. Let your will and your word be more important for my life in this culture I live in. Let my faith and my trust be in you. Can you imagine a church that would simply humble themselves before God and completely put their trust and faith in God and not be conformed to this world? As Romans says, do not be conformed to this world, but be renewed by the transform or be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Can you imagine a church and the impact that we could have? if we could align ourselves with the word of God, not allowing our culture to dictate who we are and what we believe, but allowing the word of God that has been passed down from generation to generation, it's been known to be true, it's been proven to be true, and what is good for us, this is good. We could have a greater impact in our community. people would see that we're a body that does not shaken and moving by what popular culture says we should be. But we will stand firm in our trust and our belief in God and pursue the gospel to the ends of this world.